Hello and welcome to the latest Science of Sport podcast. I'm your host Matt Solomon and today I'm delighted to be joined by Joel Smith. This podcast is brought to you by Hawking Dynamics, the world leader in innovative force plate technology. Hawking Dynamics takes a user-centric approach featuring a fully customizable cloud-based software that allows users to easily digest and analyze complex force plate data. The technology is constantly evolving, much like an app update for your iPhone. They communicate with users on a daily basis to make their system better. In addition to all of that, they also offer some of the most competitive prices for bilateral force plates on the market. And they're the only force plate company offering a completely wireless system. So, if you want to find out more, check out their easy intro to force plate section at www.hawkingdynamics.com forward slash blog. So, without further ado, it's time to welcome Joel onto the show. So, Joel, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It is an absolute pleasure to have you here. Yeah, it's awesome to be here. Thanks for having me on, Matt. So, thank you very much for taking the time for joining us today. Um, can you give us a quick introduction as to who you are and what you've been up to until now in life? Sure. Yeah. So, um, my background is really in both track and field and strength and conditioning. Um, I've done the traditional university progress and the exercise and sports sciences and those types of things. But um, my my path was I was spent six years as a track coach primarily, uh, working with sprints and jumps and those things primarily, and then um, a little bit of assistant work for cross country and distance, and then did sports performance um, on the side, uh, not on the side, but it wasn't my main thing. It was kind of a that was more of my part time. Uh, and then that flip flop the next eight years, uh, where I took on a job as a full time uh, strength coach at UC Berkeley, I was still able to stay active and club track and field and, and things like that. But that became a lot smaller part. So I've had good experience doing uh, working in both realms on on um, as a primary level. And then this last year, I've um, uh, struck out on my own. And I'm now in the private sector. And uh, so life has changed a little bit there. But it's fun I'm volunteering as uh, like as a high school track coach. And so really just kind of um, getting into all elements of the field. Um, that's really been the story is just trying to um, not just be in one little place, I guess you could say, not that we all are at all by any means, but just trying to really expand the the audience of who I work with. And uh, so doing that, uh, working with athletes uh, in the online space, and then I run the Just Fly Performance podcast as well. I've been doing that for four years. So you've uh, you've obviously got a loads of success through the podcast as well, but you've got some some cool coaching experience. And today I wanted to quiz you on uh, the feet and why the feet are then super important in athletic performance. Um, so can you give us a quick introduction then as to uh, why it's important that we start to train our feet? Yeah, so I think that we tend to put a lot of um, emphasis on just like the total quantitative uh, output of a program. Uh, did you lift more? Did you get more powerful in a metric? Did you jump higher? Did you sprint faster? And we see a number um, but the question is, well, how did that athlete, what strategy did that athlete use to arrive at that improvement? Um, I, one of the books that I've, um, it's kind of like, I don't know if you call it a cult book, but it's a, uh, no one knows who wrote it. Uh, but the, it was, it's called the greatest sports training book ever by basically anonymous. And the, the person who, it was a brilliant book though, and the person who wrote it, and, and I think this is, um, confirmed by what we've seen on the research on some level is athletes either have good feet or good hips. Um, and basically, that's a, probably another way of saying athletes are either muscle dominant or they're elastic dominant. 
Uh, and you could take that a few different ways. But I think we tend to see that. We tend to see athletes who prefer long um, contact times and short contact times. And But at the end of the day, the athletes, especially the athletes who prefer, prefer, <laughs> prefer short contact times, uh, there's something that has to, uh, that, uh, that having good feet, well, what does that mean? Because it's kind of a very general statement. I mean, I don't know. Does it mean you can do a short foot well? Does it mean your intrinsic foot muscles are strong? Does it mean that you can do a lot of weight in a single leg calf raise? Does it mean you could do a single leg reactive strength, you know, pop? What, like, what does that mean? So I've actually spent a lot of years really pondering that question because I don't think it's something that necessarily shows up like directly on a force plate. I mean, I think it can a little bit. Like I think an athlete who has a good reactive strength and good hopping ability um, is generally going to have what we would call good feet. But what I've kind of, um, I guess I've put having good feet as is the ability to sense the foot and the arches of the foot in space and integrate it with the rest of the body. Uh, and hopefully as we talk throughout today, I think I've learned more than ever, especially the last few years, that training the feet is a, is a total body thing. Um, it's something that also I'll say in the having a good feet, it's being able to work uh, in the paradigm of, of a bottom-up paradigm. Basically, being able to sense the body in space, the foot in space, and work with the ground in a tensegrity-based manner from the ground up rather than um, in a barbells i think we kind of go top down a lot like you have a tension pattern let's say a bar's on your back and you're raising your shoulder blades and squeezing them a little bit to create this platform from the bar you're creating tension in the shoulders and that is working its way down and yeah the coach might coach in that squat and say well just you know grip your toes or i don't know do something and which actually I, i'm not for gripping toes <laughs> uh and then it, it becomes a uh, that often becomes a top down or they'll say brace your back or which i don't agree with that either um and then it becomes this top down tensegrity model versus a from the foot up uh model that works its way through the whole body so with that in mind, what does the foot then do in terms of movement? Because yeah, you've mentioned, for example, uh, that it might be a, instead of a top down and bottom up approach, but what kind of movements then occur at the foot, which allow it to either produce force or transmit force and therefore improve athletic performance? Sure. So Gary Ward is talking, who is, um, I, I haven't actually spent time with him to call him a mentor, but he's been very influential uh, for for me and my learning of the foot, and he runs a, a company or website called Anatomy in Motion, and has mentored several of the people who have been on my podcast. And he refers to the foot as a, it's a mobile adapter, and it's also um, so by by mobile adapter, basically it plays the role of adapting to um, the ground as you roll over it, but also it can become a, a, a stiff spring when needed. Um, I think that we tend to think, uh, so basically it's, it's either adapting to the ground so we can roll over the ground, which is not really, um, that's not really the spring that we talk about, or it can become a spring. And so I think that it's easy to be reductionist and think of the foot only from the perspective of just maximal stiffness, like how stiff can I get this thing? And in a sense, you, you know, for some very reactive athletes where it's needed, like I know they talk about um, when they studied high jumper stuff, Swedish high jumper stuff on home, 
who was, um, I think he was like one meter 80 tall and jumped two meters 40. So tremendous height overhead jump. His Achilles tendon took like four times the, the effort to stretch than the average person. So from on, on that level of stiffness, and if you watch him do like really stiffness requiring things like hurdle hops and things, he had an unbelievable amount. But then if you watch him do a standing vertical jump, um, it was really, really poor, which a standing counter movement jump requires the foot to operate in a different way. That's a different context of stiffness. And his standing vertical jump was like 60 centimeters or something. So um, I think that what we need to look at is that the, we, ha- we, the, we have stiffness, but it's, it's in context. Um, and so the, I guess you could say it could show up in if we're looking for what am I seeing on a force play? Yeah. Someone who has a great reactive strength score, it's going to have a lot of strong and connective tissues in their feet. They're going to have feet that operate well. But when we look at what happens um, in sport from, let's just say watching basketball or, or football, but basketball is a good one or volleyball. Uh, and we're doing like different two leg jumps in different contexts. Well, yes, we need a stiffness element of the foot for example the the last leg plant that comes down that foot is going to have to be pretty stiff for just to generalize it but the second to last step the body has to roll over that um that plant foot and it has to be that foot has to be a little bit more of a mobile adapter to translate that so sometimes we'll have different feet doing different things um, and a lot of times you would see that if you had someone hop on their left leg, for example, a lot of times they're going to be stiffer than hopping on the right leg because each foot has a different job. And so I don't think, I think that, you know, we, we want to, we always want to keep things in context of what the athlete is actually doing. Um, there is, uh, even chasing some of these reactive strength numbers and, you know, for, for that type of strength or foot strength, you can only take that so far because ultimately there's subtle twists and turns of the feet and the legs to hit specific positions and takeoffs and things like that, or changes the direction. And so it always has to get integrated back to the whole, but you always want to ask yourself, well, on a, a, a hardware level, um, are, there should be certain things that a good foot can generally do. So, and we can talk about that. This podcast is also brought to you by Flex. Flex is the latest product to enter the velocity-based training market developed by the team at Gymware. Flex is the only laser-based training system available and it's this unique technology that makes Flex the most accurate and reliable barbell tracking product in the sub-500 US dollar category. It's wireless, portable, and it's super user-friendly. Find out why VBT is such a powerful training method and what separates Flex from the competition at flexstronger.com. Uh, yeah, gladly. So, what what should then a foot do in in your world to make sure that it can deliver as much force as possible uh, to complete a sporting action? Sure. And so, I'll say too, I I, I think that I tend to not. It's always uh, to me. I look at as much force as needed, um, just because there's. It's always going to be um, in context of the the what's asked biomechanically. But I mean, again, you look at someone like you know, so Stefan Holm, who's got a a rocket for an Achilles tendon, right? Like that that is a tendon capable of outputting tremendous amounts of force because it's being asked to. And I'm sure if you like you know studied like LeBron James's Achilles tendon, you'd probably see similar similar things. So, uh, but 
with that in mind, though, I always am looking at, um, and again, this is something that is a little bit more, I don't know if you call it the, the art of things, but you want to look at the three arches of the foot and you want to see that an athlete is able to have adequate activation of those three arches. And that perhaps could be the more force oriented element because our bodies mirror nature. And so nature is filled with um, not so much straight lines. If you look at rivers, rivers don't go in a straight line. Rivers run and rivers spiral. And um, the the depth of the floor changes of the river. And so the strongest um, element or object in nature is a dome. Uh, we could also say triangles are strong too. But it, what's interesting is there's both triangles and domes in the foot. And so your foot has three domes. It has three arches. It has a medial, a, long, a lateral, and a transverse. And so the medial is that that big, like the main arch of the foot that we associate with the arch on the inside. The transverse arch runs the span of the balls of the feet. And the lateral runs that basically opposite of the medial arch. It runs along the lateral edge, like the pinky toe to the, the heel. And so when an athlete... Um, Basically, you can tell if an athlete has achieved an at like is activating those three by really looking at what's happening with the transverse arch and the balls of the feet. And it's hard to completely um, like to, if there's no video, I'll do the best I can. But let's just say you have your your sock off and you're looking at your barefoot and you're looking at your barefoot from the front. Well, if your transverse arch is active. What you'll tend to see is you'll tend to see a small little bit of lift in the middle toes of the foot. They're not going to necessarily be off the ground or the balls of the feet aren't going to be off the ground. But you'll see that that part of the foot is raised just a little bit relative to the two anchor points um, with the ball of the big and the ball of the little. And you can see it. Uh, an easy way to do it, too. And I'll, I'll d demonstrate this when I show athletes the principle is the ability to basically see notice a soft foot or a flaccid foot that doesn't have that arch activation and a lot of times when you see that you actually see the force um, vector kind of you almost it almost looks like there's a vector of force traveling towards the pinky toe as if everything's kind of kind of mushing towards the pinky toe and the toes are going to be really flat and there's really not a lot of like curve or life in them um, where a foot that has that middle arch active you tend to see a little bit of like healthy toe curl and I say healthy because there is a bad, you can take that to the extreme, you can get hammer toes and things, but there's a healthy little bit of toe curl there. Um, and you can see the tendons kind of popping out in the top of the foot. Generally, all of them, if you just see the ones on the outside, that's generally not great. But so just noticing that that arch is active to see some tendons, to see a little bit of toe curl, to see the middle of the foot, the middle of the balls of the feet lifted a little bit. The athlete should have the ability to do that because if Basically, it's like you can have that dome there as that force absorber. Let's just think of it as a little trampoline. You can have a little trampoline in the balls of your feet, or you cannot have one. <laughs> and if you're going to be doing explosive things, you definitely want that trampoline there. And that's where I take it back to what I said right at the beginning of this is you can have an athlete run faster and jump higher, but how do they do it? If they don't have the trampoline there, the only way to do it is to generate more power that runs through the, the main muscles of the, and movers of the leg and the hips and things like that. And so, and again, I'm not saying that's, that's necessarily terrible if an athlete does improve their hip power. It's what strategy did you use? But 
the fascial and the foot-based strategy would run through that trampoline in the foot. So that is one is, do you have a trampoline in your foot, in your transverse arch particularly? And then knowing that if you'd activated that one, the other two should be active. And then the other one is, can you pronate? Which that one, the pronation fits with being a mobile adapter. Um, that's the ability of those three arches to flatten as needed. And the foot to work in opposition where the forefoot and the rear foot are kind of performing these opposite actions and the foot is lengthening. And so you could think of that as you'll see like an athlete, I like basketball, relate to it well, but an athlete like getting low in a cut where they're really going around a defender and you see that foot kind of flat against the ground as they're really getting low and, and trying to create this position of level change. And so that kind of tells me, can the foot achieve different positions to achieve different different outcomes? And so I think that's important because if we just really worked maximal stiffness, and you can, like I, I like doing something with athletes a lot called, I just call it a hyperarch hop because that's what this guy, uh, Chong Ji, who really came up with this paradigm of that fascial foot with the arches and domes and you see it with the tendons. He does this drill where you're in a, in a quarter squat, half squat and you're hopping with the heels off the ground, you could call it late stance. That's a very late stance, stiffness-oriented creation of things, but that's only one part of uh, movement. You Athletes work from the heel to the front of the foot in many situations. So you kind of need both. Um, that's polarizing a little bit. So in, in short, you need a trampoline in the transverse arch, and then you need the foot to work as a full mobile adapter. Um, so the, between those two things, you can have a little bit more robust function. So with that in mind, how then can we start to train these aspects of the foot in order to then improve our performance? Sure. So to keep things simple, um, the that hyperarch hop I described could be, the, if I'm uh, being a little bit of a generalist, uh, to have that fascial level. I mean, it doesn't just have to be hyperarch hop, but to me, any hopping um in in different foot alignments you can hop on a flat foot you can hop on the balls of the feet only but doing that in context of having um one having the arches active so teaching athletes to do that and then doing hopping would be the basic one for a level of stiffness um as we want to you know uh, i guess as you just want to say like the ability to resist deformity so a hyperarch hop is just, yeah, you get down in like a quarter squat to a third of a squat. The heels are off the ground and you're hopping on the balls of the feet. Uh, Chong likes to do that diagonally, which I like diagonal because a lot of times plants, planting in a jump is a, actually a diagonal occurrence in many ways. Um, rather than it's not like a pure, it is not a pure sagittal plane um, thing. Even like a single leg jump, you're going to have some external rotation in the femur as you wind up the plant moving into internal as you accept force and then back to external in the the toe off so there's always rotational actions and so that's why i like chong's hyperarch hop because it just reciprocates that the foot is loading on a diagonal vector some level of a diagonal vector um, so basically quarter squat heels off the ground hopping on the balls of the feet and then he likes to focus on the second uh, metatarsal head or the ball of the second toe as a contact point uh, and I do think I do like that because that's kind of a natural balance point of the foot if you're standing on a single leg. So that's that's one way you could do it. And then if you watch athletes do that hop, for example, you tend to notice a lot of athletes who don't activate the arch. Basically, if you don't have the trampoline dome and the transverse arch, 
which you can lift the pinky toe up to do that. That can kind of, that's a little bit of a hack, if you will. I don't like the term hack, but athletes who don't do that, who don't have a naturally active transverse arch, you'll see a lot of excess um, heel motion as they hit the ground, a lot of more dorsiflexion type activities. Because again, if you don't have the trampoline there, you're going to have more um, deformity. Your heel is going to come down. And again, this is just one way the foot operates. Um, it, it, it does operate in other bo- you know, modes and motions. This is why athletes can definitely get away with not having that strategy. But if you're a reactive athlete, you need that's where you make your money. So if you're that elastic athlete, the athlete who prefers short contact times, uh, you make your money in that late stance stiffness because you're going to get to that point and work off that point a lot. Not always, but in many cases, in many situations, you're going to work off that point. So you can do that. Um, I like you know, the rudiment battery that a lot of coaches are familiar with, which is more a heel to toe, single leg type action or double leg um, versus late stance. So, But I like, um, I like doing that with different emphasis. I like doing it with a full foot emphasis. I like doing it with a ball of the foot emphasis. I like doing it in different um, and the rudiment is meant to be done horizontally and medially, but I like the diagonal vector a lot. Um, I think that's um, missed by a lot of people because that's where the plant vectors often are. So uh, that would be like the foundation of elasticity for that. And then working pronation and, and the mobile adapter element is a little bit different story uh, because that can get very complex. Um, it's probably too complex for me to describe. I like Gary Ward's wedges where you, and he, you can use li- these little wedges you put on like, uh, different elements of the aspects of the calcaneus or under the big toe ball, the big toe area. And you can use that to teach the foot to flatten better in various situations. Um, but just a, maybe an easier way to describe that would be, I like doing PVC pipe work or an athlete is standing on a couple of PVC pipes, four inches or uh, 10 centimeters in diameter and and as long as the length of the foot and they're doing like inversions and eversions and squats and and in all different positions on those things and to me it's not even so much the balance is more about the proprioceptive and sensory element for the foot although it is a flat pipe so you're not gonna and that's obviously done barefoot so your your sensory load is not like amazing but that does allow you to really train the foot uh, in its mobile adapter ability in a lot of different motions and so without getting crazy into the science of pronation if you have pvc pipes um, you can get a lot done there i think that's uh, super interesting and what i'm really interested in is seeing how you bring all this together um, and you implement that in your training and your practice so could you run through a quick case study for us as to how you kind of implement these uh these exercises these activities in a program as a whole Sure. Yeah. So yeah. So well, I'll just say, I guess how I, um, I've had a lot of online clients who have come to me who have had really big gym numbers, like squat is quite a bit or deadlift. And then they're just not seeing it translate into like a vertical jump is a common thing. Like people want to dunk a basketball better or something like that. And I've had, um, pretty good success with a lot of these athletes. And, um, one, like, I'll just say like maybe one in particular, um, I think we've improved his jump about maybe 10 to uh, 10 to 12 centimeters at least, probably more, maybe 10 to 15. And with not doing quite as much emphasis on the lifting, we still do. But for example, the main, um, he's um, he had both a need for improved mobile adapter function and stiffness. So we would put in, for example, a lot of hyperatops daily, um, several minutes 
PVC pipe work um, like four times a week. Uh, that's oftentimes done as a warm up and just trying to get that element of the foot to work better there just to be a better mobile adapter. Uh, also, to, also we'll do a lot of, um, I like to do a lot of driver based work. So for example, just standing on a single leg barefoot and the other leg you're doing uh, circles, leg circles, like uh, 10, 10 and uh, I, I want to convert to centimeters backwards American units, like 30 centimeter um, radius or diameter circles with the free leg in space. So that free leg swinging is acting as a driver and forcing the leg on the ground to adapt on a flat foot scenario. And we'll do a lot of those in different directions pretty regularly or a single leg Romanian deadlift for, for time for a minute and 30 seconds or two minutes. And so those are that's something there is present pretty much every day, uh, not just as a standalone, but also as a primer. Like I like to do that stuff either in the beginning of the workout as a primer just to wake the foot and the fascial system up and really get that active. And sometimes we'll do it as a finisher, but that's almost always there. Um, also, I, I, I do have a case study with, um, I guess this is a more integrated model, but I have a American um, masters. I work with a lot of masters track athletes and uh, she's a, a record holder in the women's 55 and had pretty serious uh, hip issues. Uh, and so we use that, like those hip circles as a driver and barefoot just to link the foot and the hip together. And, and that basically eliminated her hip issues. And so strong feet can really help out. There's the feet and the hips are, are intimately connected. So I, we don't, I, I think it's helpful not to think of things in a vacuum. Um, also, I've had athletes who cannot, for the life of them, activate that transverse arch, get those tendons to pop. But as soon as we feed them a little bit of hip internal rotation, all of a sudden everything comes to life. So these, and that's another thing that's actually linked with that, um, that fascial web and that fascial foot is the ability to internally rotate at the thigh. So we will, um, sometimes that's what we need to work on as well. And that becomes a long discussion. Um, but yeah, I like to use that hips as drivers and honestly, just standing on one leg, uh, with the other leg elevated in the air for time for two, three, four minutes, and then supersetting that with, uh, like high rep calf raises, fast, powerful calf raises with pauses. I like to do that as well. So those are the things, and a lot of my clients will get that. And I've had I've had a lot of clients. I mean, I would almost say my average client comes to me with big gym numbers, and we we spend a lot of time digging in the fat fascial and foot systems. And I'll get like the original client I was mentioning, like he has his one leg ability and the ease, you know, of which he'll dunk off one leg. He'll he'll comment on that and how much easier that is, and the fact that he can well one day he can even do that now, but two, how easy and elastic he feels getting up off the ground. And so, yeah, those are things that are pretty much present in every session, just some more simple things. I think that's uh, super interesting. So massive thanks for taking us through that. And before we leave, I want to very quickly ask you the one most difficult question that we can think of. And that is the one thing that you see or do differently, which the rest of the world can learn from. <laughs> that's a good question. I think, well, I can tell you what I was doing differently yesterday that I don't think anyone else does is... <laughs> Is uh, I mentioned the answers um, are found in nature, and so this is the thing: is so many gyms, you know, everything. It's it's a box, it's a square, it's straight line. Our barbells are straight lines. We we operate on smooth floors, and so something that you can do that I do that I like doing. I can't necessarily do it with a group of athletes. I'll do it if people train with me individually, like at my house. Is I I'll, I'll go to a rock bed and I'll go do single leg like skater squats on with my feet on different rocks with different textures, 
And so go put your bare foot on a rock with a texture that, and maybe it's kind of irritating. Maybe it doesn't feel good. Um, bathing the foot and the body in different sensations that come from the ground up is a good practice. So, I mean, if a coach wanted to drag a lot of different textured rocks in the weight room and say, go barefoot and do your next round of skater squats and things on those. I mean, it'd be interesting. You probably get some crazy looks, but at the end of the day, I think where we're headed as an industry is reintroducing sensation. So just putting different sensory patterns into the foot to help the body. Cause I mean, how much does really get taking a skater squat where you are holding 10 or 15 kilos on each hand out in front of you? How much is taking that skater squat up to holding an extra five, 10 kilos on each hand really going to help your athletic performance with, with everything else being the same sterile ground, you're in shoes. There's no more sensation load coming into the foot versus just being robust. And like when we were kids, we did this stuff all the time. You probably walked on all sorts of different surfaces, barefoot in your backyard or in the forest or something, hopefully. And we get, we get so far away from that. We forget who we really are on a level. And so I think that's something that I do reg- try to make a regular practice of that I've found has been very helpful. And when I do get the opportunity to do it, I use it. It's just not a common thing you have in the gym. So I just hope we become more attuned to different sensory surfaces and challenges for the feet because we have 200,000 nerves in our feet and building that bottom-up strategy from sensation, from manipulating the arches of the foot. And that also changes the muscle firing pattern upstream too with the calf, the soleus, and all the muscles. So I just hope we get more accustomed to doing that kind of thing. Joel, that's super interesting. So massive thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. All right. Well, thanks for having me on, Matt. Appreciate it. Cheers, buddy. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks to Joel for all of his hard work on today's podcast. I really appreciate it, and I'm sure you do at home too. So if you've enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to get yourself into the show notes in just a few seconds' time. And In the show notes, there'll be a range of different links, including a link to Joel's latest course. You can sign up for some pre-information there, and that's all about elasticity and how you can use that to enhance sporting performance. And if you have enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to check out the Coach Academy. We can give you a seven-day free trial, so completely free, to check out all of the latest content in the Coach Academy. And that is a range of lectures lasting approximately two hours broken down into bite-sized chunks. The bite-sized chunks you can fit around your busy coaching schedule. So every single week, you'll be updated with a new lecture and new learning possibilities. If that interests you, be sure to check out the link in the show notes where you can get a free trial for seven days in just a few seconds time. And lastly, if you've enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to hit the subscribe button. That's really important as it means that we can keep giving you the best possible content and bringing, of course, the best possible guests onto the show. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks from me. I'm Matt Solomon for Science of Sport and I'll speak to you next week.